All right, Alexander, let's do an update on Ukraine. We'll start with what's going on on the ground, as we always do. We still have uh, fighting in Bakhmut. We still have fighting in uh, Zaporozhye. There is still the threat of Belarus to the north that Ukraine is obviously very, very concerned about. And we have now Ugladar. So uh, from one week to another, we've got another, uh, I guess you could call it a direction or, or another flashpoint where, where we need to talk about. And reports vary, but I've heard anywhere from fighting is taking place in the city to fighting is taking place on the outskirts of the city of Ugladar to the city is about to be uh, encircled to it's in an operational encirclement. I think the main point of what's going on in Nugodar is that the Russians are making progress, and they're making progress in uh, in a steady but but um, decisive way. We could talk about the uh, the tanks are yesterday. The tanks are yesterday's news, Alexander. Now we're looking at fighter jets, All right, so we could talk about the fighter jets and. Uh, Let's see, there was a statement from, uh, I believe, the Prime Minister of Ukraine talking about applying to the IMF, which is not a good sign for Ukraine at all. We, we, as Greeks, we understand what it means to go to the IMF. And there's Victoria Nuland, uh, the Deputy uh, Secretary of State or Deputy Under Secretary of State to Anthony Blinken, and she was giving a briefing to Congress about uh, the situation in Ukraine. Interesting questions from Rand Paul. Uh, she made interesting comments about Belarus, interesting comments about Nord Stream to Ted Cruz, and, and whatever else uh, you, you want to discuss with regards to Ukraine. I think the most interesting story by far is Victoria Nuland's testimony. And um, it comes directly after, or shortly after, an equally interesting interview that her boss, or supposed boss, I do wonder who is the real boss between the two of them, between uh, uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and David Ignatius in the, in the Washington Post. But I think we'll, we'll turn to that in a moment, because I think we should do what we always do, which is start basically with the military things. But can I just say that... There's something going on. I'm not entirely clear what it is, but it's like somebody in Washington is trying to sort of put up olive branches towards Moscow. But they're doing it in such a weird, complicated and perhaps, frankly, duplicitous way that it's guaranteed that the Russians won't accept it. Now, that's my own personal take on this. I, you know, but we'll talk about that in more detail. Let's talk about the military situation. Now, you're absolutely right. Fighting in Bakhmut goes on. It's much the same as always. In other words, Ukrainians have been ground down. Russian forces now, according to some reports, they basically captured all of the eastern areas of Bakhmut. They're closing in from various other locations. There's definitely street fighting now going on in the town and they're gradually, the Russians are gradually working their way to capturing these remaining three villages around Bakhmut. Krasnaya Gora to the north, another place called Paraskovica or something like that, which I can never quite get right and I apologise for that. I'm sorry, but it's just 
sometimes these names are difficult. Anyway, they, they're, they're pushing there, and they're also pushing towards a town the Russians called Krasnoye, and, uh, which is to the west of Bakhmut. If the Russians finally capture all three of these places, then Bakhmut is not just in an operational encirclement, it is in a total encirclement. And the Ukrainian forces in Bakhmut are trapped. No sign Ukraine is trying to withdraw from Bakhmut. The Americans have told them to. They're paying no attention. On the contrary, they seem to be trying to reinforce in that area. They are still there. And a very interesting visit by a journalist from Al Jazeera to a Ukrainian command position near um, Bakhmut. And this person, this Al Jazeera journalist, was allowed to take film. And that gave, make, provided an opportunity to collate the number of Ukrainian units that are actually defending Bakhmut itself. Not just, you know, all the units in the area, but those defending Bakhmut itself. And I think I'm right in saying I counted identities of six brigades. Six brigades! <laughs> I mean, it's a huge... I mean, a brigade is, you know, at full strength, is about 4,000 men. Now, I don't think it's... That, you know, I don't think these brigades are anywhere close to being that. But this is still a, a, an extraordinary commitment of fighting force to try to defend this supposedly unimportant town. But Bakhmut is an ongoing story. I suspect it's still got some way to go. The big news story is Vugladar. Vugladar is another town, a bit like Solidar in some ways, small, relatively small place in itself, heavily fortified apparently by the Ukrainians, it's on a sort of high ground. It dominates the surrounding landscape. It sits close to all the big roads that lead into Donbass from the south. Ukraine, the Ukraine sends supplies and troops to its forces near Donetsk city th through these roads that pass either by or close to uh, Vugladar. If Vugladar is lost, all the reports suggest that the Russians will have cut off supplies will be in position to cut off supplies to those Ukrainian forces near Donetsk City, which would mean that over time, presumably, the Ukrainian defences in southern Donbass, in southern Donetsk region, would start to collapse. So we see Bakhmut, when Bakhmut falls, when Sivask falls, Ukrainian positions in northern Donetsk region start to collapse, when Vugladar falls, Ukrainian positions in southern Donbass start to collapse. And you can see that the Russians are maintaining the pressure in all of these places. Now, important point to bear in mind is that a couple of months ago, as we all know, the Russians called up 300,000 reservists. They've been joined by something like 80,000 volunteers. None of these new forces have been committed to these latest battles. The Russian forces that are attacking Vugladar are uh, uh, forces that have been in the area for a long time. The uh, fighting in Bakhmut, it's the same, you know, mainly the Wagner organization and it's, you know, the forces that are connected to it. So we haven't yet seen the big new Russian forces 
committed to battle. Either the 160,000 reservists that are being organised into new units and are being gradually re-equipped and re, you know, pro, you know, placed in a kind of operational reserve in the rear, or the 100,000 troops that supposedly are now in Belarus. We've had those forces have not yet been committed to the battle. So already, even these smaller forces that have been there for a long time, they're now applying more and more pressure. And Vugladar, the fact that the Russians have either encircled Vugladar or at least appear to be fighting very close to its outskirts and are definitely talking about the fact that they are likely to capture the place before very long. Well, all of that suggests that Ukraine, Ukraine's positions on the battlefronts is weakening. Yeah, we talked about uh, Wagner, who have now been uh, designated, I believe, uh, is it a, a terrorist group, Alexander? No. What did the Treasury no, designate it, it, Wagner the other it's day? It's very interesting. Uh, it's a criminal organization. <laughs> Other cr do criminal have organization. Yeah. Yes, of course, of course, it does have a lot of ex-convicts in it, but then so does as the Foreign Legion and all sorts of other organizations like that. And I don't... But I think people should know it's not just convicts that served in Wagner. A lot of them are ex-special forces and people of that kind. Anyway, they have done that. And, of course, the reason they're doing that is because that means that, you know, if Wagner operatives go to third countries, the United States can do what it has long done. It can bring extradition proceedings against them. You know, some of them go to Thailand, for example, and extradite, ask them to be extradited to the United States because supposedly this is a criminal outfit, not a proper military outfit, and they can be sent to the United States and locked in prisons and that kind of thing. Now, I have to say, I think that's appalling. I think that's completely wrong. I have previously said that I fundamentally disagree with the Russian practice of treating mercenaries, Western mercenaries, who go into battle in Donbass as non-combatants. I think they are combatants, whatever feelings one has about these mercenaries. And it seems to me the same applies equally, to at least an equal extent, to these Wagner operatives. Whatever the former backgrounds of these people are, what they're doing in Bakhmut is part of a proper military war. It certainly doesn't in any way justify designating them any kind of criminal organization. Yeah, the, the, the problem with all of, you know, this criminal organization designation thing is that just six months ago, the U.S. was down this path with the WNBA basketball player and the Victor uh, Booth thing. I mean, we'll grab your guy and then the Russians will grab. I mean, they've already been down this road. They haven't yes, learned their lesson. No, they haven't learned their lesson. On the, yeah. on the contrary, they're, they're, they're doubling and tripling, quadrupling down, which is what, unfortunately, they have a dangerous habit of doing. And we're going to come to the arms issues in a moment and the fighter jets and all that. But that, that is what they're doing. And we're going to get into a disastrous situation where the Americans seize Russians, the Russians seize Americans. There'll be trade-offs, there'll be anger, there'll be all kinds of things. It's, it, it, I mean, it is a... It is a collapse into lawlessness, 
And uh, I'm, you know, I, I've said that I think the Russians were completely wrong to apply that to Western mercenaries fighting in Donbass. But that doesn't change the fact that it's the Americans who've been driving this thing. They've been doing this for many years now, and it, 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 they're intensifying it. They're, they're, you know, looking, no doubt, to try and capture Prigozhin himself if he leaves Russia. These are crazy ideas. They're, very, they're not just crazy ideas, they're very bad ideas. And you can see how this could escalate and escalate out of control. But it's entirely consistent with the behavior of the, U, uh, of the U.S. authorities for some years now, and with this administration especially. Yeah, we're entering lawlessness. We'll seize your guys. You seize our, you'll seize our guys. We'll seize your guys. We'll blow up pipelines. We'll seize assets. We'll close media uh, companies like what they did to RT in France. It, it, we are entering lawlessness. And the part that's the most frightening is that when, when the whole Russia thing comes to some sort of conclusion, these policies and these actions are not going to go away. They're going to be turned inwards. That's my that, that's that's how I see it. That's the that's, well, no, that's I, a very frightening uh, aspect. You are of all absolutely this. you are absolutely correct about this, and we've already seen. I mean, I don't want to go into details because that might be that might be sensitive for some people. But you know, we've already seen this. We've discussed this with in the various programs we've done with Robert Barnes. But undoubtedly, we see this. Yeah. So I was I was saying that we we mentioned this about a week, two weeks ago, about how Wagner was this was Bakhmut was, for lack of a better term, was their type of, of war within a war for for Wagner. It was like their private military operation in Bakhmut. And we and we noted the, the fact that, you know, it is Wagner there not to take anything away from the Russian military. But in Bakhmut, Wagner was was the doing. They were the ones that have had the presence and have the presence in, in Bakhmut. And uh, the Russian military is, is, is there waiting, it seems, uh, a formidable Russian military. Um, so with that being said, you have a formidable Russian military, and they're going to be waiting for, for leopards and challengers and in a year or two or three for some Abrams tanks as, as well. And uh, fighter jets. Fighter jets. Slovakia is looking to send some MiGs. Uh, everyone is is getting together their F-16s. Lockheed Martin is saying, "Hey, if anyone needs fighter jets, we'll we're here for you. So let's let's do business." I mean, what's going on here? Well, it is. It's inevitable. It's the escalatory escalator that we were talking about the other day. I mean, it's uh, you know one of our live streams because that's exactly what it is. You see, what Schultz does is he gets the, you know the dogs bark he doesn't want to do this i think he he realizes i don't know that he has much understanding of the risks in ukraine but he knows that there are many people in germany who are unhappy with this policy he knows that the military is very unhappy i mean they've made it as clear as a military can ever do the german military has made it as clear as the german military can ever do that they completely disagree with the entire policy in Ukraine, and they don't want this. They didn't want to send Leopard two tanks. They were told that they wouldn't be pushed into sending Leopard two tanks in Ukraine. The previous, by the way, highly incompetent German defence minister, Mrs. Lambrecht, agreed with the German military about this. No German tanks to Ukraine. This was going to be the red line, 
And then, of course, what happens, it always happens, is that uh, um, um, Scholz then comes under pressure from all the usual crowd, the Poles, the Balts, the British, the Americans then eventually weigh in, the Greens within his own government weigh in, Baerbock, uh, Habeck, all of those, and he eventually crosses his red lines. <laughs> he says, actually, well, you know, I thought about it, I'm going to hide behind the American skirts, I'm going to pretend that they're going to send Abraham's tanks to Ukraine, but of course, we don't know when those tanks will ever get to Ukraine, or whether they will ever, you know, find their way there, or what timetable there is. There's no clear timetable for the deployments of these tanks. But he agrees to send his Leopard 2 tanks. And he's now saying, no fighter jets, absolutely not, never, ever going to be fighter jets sent to Ukraine. Opinion polls in Germany show overwhelming opposition to sending fighter jets in Ukraine. But everybody knows that at some point, as the situation in Ukraine for the Ukrainians deteriorates again, as all these huge forces, these huge Russian forces, come into motion, as it looks as if Ukraine is about to lose, well, he's going to come under exactly the same pressures as before. The Balts, the Poles, the uh, British, uh, eventually the Americans, they'll all join in, say, we've got to send fighter jets, we've got to do this, we've got to do that to save Ukraine. And, of course, he's going to agree. Because that is what Schultz always does. And he comes out with these mumbling statements about, you know, how we must avoid escalation. We must avoid a, a wider war. We are uh, looking to keep this thing under control. But, of course, his own foreign minister, Baerbock, pays no attention. She comes along, makes a speech in the Bundestag, says Germany, Europe is at war with Russia. So he is in the classic position of appeasing the unappeasable. But he doesn't seem to get it, and he just goes along. And we've seen this, we saw this with the economic sanctions, uh, uh, no sanctions, no, no cut-off of Russian banks from SWIFT, no interference with gas or oil supplies. He just goes along and does all of those things. And it's the same with weapons. He's got himself into a situation where he's been propelled along to places he's always sworn that he will never go. Now, if they do get around eventually to sending fighter jets, which I presume they will, uh, there are so many problems. Um, I think you highlighted one in one of our earlier videos, which is that realistically these fighter jets would have to operate from Polish airfields or Baltic airfields, but presumably Polish or, or Romanian airfields. They cannot operate from Ukrainian airfields because the Russians can simply missile, strike missiles at them. Uh, it would take a long time to train Ukrainian pilots to operate these fighter jets and to operate them effectively. So the pressure would be on because, you know, we'd be looking at an escalating crisis to send in Western contractors, Western pilots, in other words. So it would be a Western pilots offering Western aircraft, fighting Russia over Ukraine, part of the historic territory, let's not forget this, of the Russian Empire and of the Soviet Union. And what would they be doing? They would be coming up against the most powerful air defense system in the world. <laughs> now, the Russians have been very, very wary about committing their air force to an unrestrained 
bombing and interdiction campaign in Ukraine because Ukraine has some Soviet S-300 systems and a couple of other systems. And that's been enough to make the Russians very careful about where they send their aircraft to. They don't want to lose lots of fighters. So they use missiles instead. They, they're very careful how they go about conducting air operations in Ukraine. Um, the West would be confronting an air defense system, a Russian air defense system, which is orders of magnitude more sophisticated and more effective than the one the Russians face in Ukraine. So you can easily see where this would go. We'd have aircraft shot out of the skies if they're piloted by Western pilots killed. And what do you do then? Where do you stop? How do you get off this escalator? And um, in the meantime, the more Western tanks roll towards Ukraine, the more fighter jets there are, the more attackers missiles, which I'm sure are coming, <laughs> end up being used by Ukraine. Um, politically speaking, the easier it gets for Putin to come along and say, look, I was right. This is a war against Russia. We're being attacked. We've got to defend ourselves. Let's call up another half a million men. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, you can see where this is going. Barack Obama pointed this all out all those years ago. In this area, the Russians always have escalatory dominance. It's obvious. So what do you do? How do you get off? Where do you stop? It's clear Schultz will never stick by his red lines. Who eventually will come out and say, we've got to stop? And will it be the militaries in the US and in Germany? And how much damage will have been done before then? And where does where 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 do we stop now? I mean, you know, you you were telling me before the program that somebody has told you about you know how the war might spread to the Baltic states. <laughs> yeah, I, I could quite easily see this happening. Well, that's that's where the neocons have the the Europeans is that they've they've created this mechanism where they have. Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, they have the law and justice and they they usually they're the first ones to to voice the uh, to, to shout about escalation. So they kick things off. Then you have the Greens, you have Barbak and you have uh, Habek and they're, they're the, they climb on and they start talking about escalation. And, you know, people like Schultz, who's weak. It's, you can just see it in the man. He's he's absolutely spineless. He 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 folds. He doesn't have the strength of character. He doesn't have the conviction to say no. It's impossible for him. So I mean, you know, the, the neocons are manipulating the situation perfectly, and they know exactly what they're doing to to get us to a war. Because everything that you described, Alexander, is a war. It's yeah, a war between Russia and NATO. I mean, tanks, that's, that's exactly. tanks moving through Ukraine, fighter jets taking off from Poland, moving yeah. through yeah. through Russia. It, it's a war. Absolutely. We're looking at an all-out war. And, and the next the next level is as Schultz outlined in a speech he gave the other day when he said no fighter jets 
and no German troops is an indication that he will fold the fighter jets and he will say yes to fighter jets and when the time comes he will fold the troops because as we saw with tanks and as we're going to see with fighter jets pretty soon Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Law and Justice, uh, Annalena, Robert Habeck are going to say we need troops, we need troops because we are fighting a war against Russia and Schultz is going to say okay I guess you know let's let's put a couple of thousand German troops and European troops and French troops and Romanian troops and let's throw them in there let's go for it that's what's good that's where the neocons are pulling this thing towards and they're doing it quite oh yeah quite skillfully and quite quickly to be yes. quite honest oh yeah absolutely and, I mean, that's, and, that's one thing they always and, and that, do it and that leads yeah. us to yeah and that leads us to uh, Newland and her testimony I just I just want to say one more thing when you mentioned about Baltics, we should never forget that we have Kaliningrad, which is there. And, you know, it's, it's a question mark. If this escalates, what could this mean for Russia, for Kaliningrad, for the countries that are in the way of Russia and Kaliningrad? I mean, my point in all of this is God help us. Escalation is not just a one-way street, and it's all well and good for the Europeans and NATO to, to sit there and, and say, okay, well, we're going to do this and that and this and that. Well, you know, the Russians, they're patient and they, they know how to wait. But they may also say, well, you know, we'll match your, your jets and your, uh, and your troops on the ground and your tanks with, with this move and that move. And perhaps, you know, all the talk about where are the Russian fighter jets, where are the Russian fighter jets? Well, maybe, just maybe, guys like Surovikin who... Is, is in charge of, of the Air Force, from what I understand. They understood that, you know what, we need to conserve our air power because I have a feeling that eventually NATO's going to want to send fighter jets our way. So we need to be able to have them there and ready to, to go. But the you know, you, you, back to the neocons, they're, they're running the show here. And I think it was obvious from the briefing yesterday to, to the Senate that uh, Victoria Newland is firmly in charge. In my opinion, she's firmly in charge of this of this operation. She's in charge yeah. of the Europeans. She's in charge of of yes. the Americans. Yes. She's she's driving this this uh, this this train this this car. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, that's the one thing, by the way, the neocons are extremely good at. They're extremely good at manipulating people into wars. I mean, they did that over Iraq. They did that over Syria. They did that over Libya. The one thing the neocons are hopeless at is winning these wars. But getting people into these wars, in effect, in, to um, in, engaging into what you might call psychological blackmail, to push people into wars, they do this very well. That's exactly what they do. They, they, they are. I mean, they, are, they, they smear. They're very good at smearing their enemies. They, you know, talk about Neville Chamberlain and appeasement was conjured up when Schultz was, you know, dithering over tanks. And of course, instead of him coming out and telling these people to take a running jump and go away, which is what he should do and what a real leader would do, he he gets scared. He doesn't want to be seen to be, uh, you know, call those things. He doesn't want to be thrown out of the club because that's what it amounts to. 
He's afraid that if he does stand up to them, uh, you know, the German media, which is neocon controlled as well, by the way, would turn on him, that his government might collapse. And the fact that German public opinion is now crystallizing in support of restraint, well, that doesn't influence him because, you see, that's, a, that's another factor, but it's not an immediate one. Um, so who knows? I mean, I don't know what he's going to do at the end of the day, but this is what I believe. You talk about Victoria Nuland, and you're quite right. You're quite right. She is in charge. And yet I think that where it will end is in the United States. <laughs> I think what all of these people in Europe, the Balts, the Poles, the Germans, the Baerbocks, the Harbecks, the uh, hardliners, you know, Johnson, um, who still seems to have a weird amount of influence in Britain over this issue, Ben Wallace, all of those people, Tobias Elwood, all these people will find is that just as happened in Afghanistan, just as happened in Afghanistan, sorry, Afghanistan, Iraq, all of these places, the Americans will eventually stop and pull back. The military are clearly against all of this. Public opinion is against it. Opinion in the in the Republican Party is hardening. Eventually, the point will come when the Americans say stop, and they'll be left high and dry. <laughs> and that's that's where it that, in my opinion, is how this is going to end. So you know, you go along with the neocons, except eventually, as I said, when America wakes up, because at the moment this isn't, I think, the biggest media topic in America. When America finally does wake up, which it will. As I said, they'll find that they hit the buffers and it will all come to a stop. But anyway, that's let's now talk about Newland, because as you rightly said, she said some very, very interesting things. And as I said, on the one hand, pretended olive branches to the Russians. So, you know, if you pull back, we'll start lifting the sanctions and Blinken gives this interview the day before to David Ignatius, and I'm sure the two are coordinating, by the way, or rather, uh, Blinken is doing what Newland told him to do. Um, so New uh, Blinken comes along, he sort of doesn't quite say it, but he sort of hints that as part of a peace agreement, Ukraine will be left out of NATO, it won't be joining NATO, there won't be any formal defence treaty arrangements, there won't be any security guarantees. Ukraine will be allowed to join the European Union. The Russians have passed, said they don't object to that, but, you know, we'll do that. And as for Crimea, well, you know, Ukraine can't really capture Crimea. We understand that. Very dangerous to do it, but we can't, you know, give up on Crimea entirely. So let's demilitarise it. Notice that word, demilitarise Crimea. Let's have... Uh, Let's have, uh, you know, its status, its political status determined in some long-term future time. But in the meantime, of course, what we're going to do in order to ensure that Ukraine is protected from another Russian attack is we're going to send hundreds and hundreds of tanks and lots of aircraft and air defence systems and missiles and all of these things to Ukraine. And by the way, this is where I think the 31 Abrams tanks comes, because I don't think they're intended to participate in this current round of fighting or in perhaps in any round of fighting. They are the precursor of a military build-up in Ukraine itself, 
which some neocons are thinking about ha arranging or staging post-war. But just, just take a step back. Ukraine is going to be, its army is going to be built up to this extreme level. The Russians are supposed to demilitarize Crimea and leave its status undetermined until some unknown future time. So what will simply happen is Ukraine will march into Crimea, which will by this point be demilitarized. In other words, there won't be any Russian troops there. They'll occupy Crimea. And of course, at that point, then they'll come along and say we're joining NATO. So the Russians aren't stupid. And uh, there's been statements today by Russian officials, Peskov, Gavrilov, saying that the United States is playing tricks that they've seen absolutely nothing from Newland or Blinken or anybody like that that really amounts to any kind of <laughs> rational proposal. And in fact, what they're seeing from, these, from the Americans is more evidence that the United States is not in any way changing its real policies. And I think they're absolutely right. And I mean, you know, if you unpack these proposals, it makes obvious sense. I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it's a sign the, these comments, first of Blinken and then of Newland, are a sign that the military are now warning this isn't going well. Militarily, things are not going well in Ukraine. That, you know, Ukraine is losing the war. Um, and what they've probably been told to do, perhaps by Schultz, perhaps by others, is, you know, we've got to make some kind of peace agreement to the Russians. So they make a peace offer a peace agreement which isn't a peace agreement at all. It's a trick. And, of course, almost certainly, because you know, one mustn't assume these people are completely stupid. They are doing it because they know the Russians will reject it. Yeah. It's, it, it, okay. <laughs> it's craziness what, what they're proposing, absolutely. Um, to, to wrap up the video, let, let's, let's talk about two different top, uh, topics that uh, Newland discussed, and I'd like your thoughts on it. Uh, I thought she, she's, she was this close, this close to admitting that the U.S. blew up the Nord Stream yeah. pipeline as she was speaking with Ted Cruz. I mean, you could see that she wants to say it. She wants to get up on stage in front of the world and say, yeah, I did it. You're damn right. I blew up that pipeline and I'll do it again. You know, she was this close to, to saying it. And the the kind of admission that they're still poking around Belarus for some sort of regime change. We're speaking to the opposition. We got people on it. We're trying to find ways, but, but we still haven't found an opening. What do you think of those two, I mean, the, two the, statements? The, the, Connected yeah. to Russia, of course, but, but a little outside of, say, the, the sanctions and the, and the actual conflict. Uh, Absolutely. The I mean, conflict. It, but interesting it's, comments. Uh, very, very interesting comments. Let's talk about Nord Stream 2, because you're absolutely right. And by the way, I, it, Robert Barnes made that very same point on one of our live streams. He said, the problem with these people is when they do these, this, this kind of thing, at some level... They can't resist the temptation to brag about it. And that's what we saw. I mean, you know, she's she's just holding back from doing it, but she's aching to do it because, of course, this is something that she, you know, really, really does want to do. 
And you're absolutely right. It's exactly what she was doing. And it doesn't, at a psychological level, especially given the kind of person Newland is, especially given her attitude to Nord Stream 2, especially, and Nord Stream 1, by the way, especially given um, the, you know, monolithic opposition that they've had to any kind of connections between Germany and Russia. You can see why, she, you know, she's yearning for the, you know, the accolades, the, the you know, the, the congratulations, the plaudits that will come her way, or so she thinks, when she is told, when she's able to come out and say, well, yes, we blew up <laughs> the Nord Stream pipelines, both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. We achieved all that that we wanted to do. We've destroyed this horrible, terrible, dangerous, monstrous thing. Now, I can understand England. It's Schultz and the Germans I can't understand. Because here we have Baerbock comes along. We're at war with Russia. <laughs> Russia isn't attacking you. It's America, apparently, if you're deciphering uh, Newland correctly, which I'm sure we are. It's America that's blowing up your pipelines. So why exactly are you going to And they're bragging about, about it. They're bragging about it. So why are you why are you talking incessantly, constantly, all the time about the fact that you're in some sort of war with Russia? It just goes to show how dysfunctional the whole debate in Germany and in Europe now, but especially in Germany, has become. Uh, how absolutely crazy and tangled up. And you know, I, I actually saw some. There's a Russian actually, and I, you know, one should take these things with a pinch of salt. There's a Russian who was saying, you know, how. Uh, going through all of the things that have happened recently, all the sort of steps that have been taken in, which have caused a crisis in Germany and, you know, economic problems, military problems, all of these sort of things. But he said, if you're Habeck, <laughs> what do you do? You blame it all on the Russians. Even though, on every other occasion, you know, there's a Poles who closed the Yamal pipeline. It's the Americans who've blown up Nord Stream 1 and 2, probably, almost certainly. It's the uh, uh, Ukrainians who are creating problems with the pipelines here. All of this, but still, you must always blame the Russians. And as I said, that, I mean, at a rational level, it is so bizarre, it is so strange, that, you know, it shows... Well, you know, Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, it's what it essentially amounts to. I mean, I don't know very much ultimately about Baerbock. What I've seen about her over the last year, I have to say, I find very bizarre and very extraordinary. Harbeck strikes me as a somewhat, shall we say, more together person, but obviously deeply fanatical in his own way. But, you know, I presume, maybe I'm wrong, that they have some lingering feelings about their country, their nation, Germany. Maybe I'm completely wrong about that. I'm sure I'll get lots of people who are wrong about that. But it's very weird that their visceral loathing of Russia is so extreme, apparently, that, you know, they're prepared to completely disregard the fact that Russia has not taken a single actual step that is hostile to Germany, despite all the steps that Germany has been taking recently, and that they're blind to who is actually taking those steps which are undermining Germany. And by the way, on that and on the economics, I saw a report now from the German um, Institute which actually showed the economic damage. You know, all the talk about, you know, gas reserves filled to the brim and all of that. How much economic damage this economic war is really doing to Germany? 
and it is huge. <laughs> it's uh, um, going to reduce, according to this institute, you know, German uh, um, GDP over a few years by about 5%. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a major, a major, and this is a long-term reduction. It's also, you know, something you can recover later. So, you know, but you don't want to talk about that. You don't want to admit to it. You don't want to admit to it to yourself. So there we go. So, you know, thank you, Vicky Newland, <laughs> for, for getting so close. I can understand you. As I said, Schultz, Baerbock, Habeck, all of those in Berlin. They, I cannot understand at all. Yeah. Well, she called it in 2014, FDEU, didn't she? Yeah, absolutely. She's, she's well, doing that's... it all right. Well, that's right. And I mean, uh, I, and, by and, the and, way... Any comments on... Yeah, I mean, just to say quickly yeah. about that, I mean, it's, I mean, this is the other thing. I mean, I talked about Stockholm Syndrome. This is an abusive relationship. And you can see the contempt that Newland has for these people. And, you know, all the neocons do. I mean, they, they understand that these people, you can do whatever you want to them. You can beat them up. You can ridicule them. You can uh, uh, um, smear them. You can um, smash up their economies and they'll simply go on coming back for more. And she knew that, in fairness to her, in 2014. After all, she works with these people and she knows this now. So, as I said, here she comes along to Congress and she's full of herself. She's able to, as you said, almost come out with it. She doesn't quite do it, but she almost comes out with it because she knows there's no consequences because the Germans will always come back for more. Yeah, you're damn right. I ordered that code red. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the movie A Few Good yeah. Men. Yeah, Alexander <laughs> with Jack Nicholson. Yeah, that that's yeah. Anyway, any, any comments on uh, real quick on Belarus? What you said about Belarus? Yeah, and again, I mean, this is again. They're this, still this, trying to figure out a way to get Lukashenko well, I know. well, I mean, does anybody is anybody surprised about that? She also says you know they're anxious to reopen dialogue with Lukashenko. <laughs> I mean, for him, I'm what kind of a dialogue would that be? I mean, it would be, I mean, you know, uh, a dialogue, you know, with you know um, some. You know, the, the mouse getting into dialogue with the cat. I mean, it's just it's just an absurd thing. I mean, Lukashenko, fortunately, isn't that stupid. But of course, they're not giving up on Belarus. They still have. I mean, the the thing to understand about the neocons is they never give up. I mean, whatever plan or strategy they have, they're not ever going to give up on it, especially not where Russia is concerned. I mean, they don't care about Belarus. Again, it's all about Russia, ultimately. And they will never give up on that because the neocons are obsessed with Russia. They're far more obsessed with Russia than they are with China. Um, there are all sorts of people, Josh Hawley, for example, going around saying, why are we wasting so much time on Ukraine? Why are we going after the Russians all the time? Um, the big challenge, long-term challenge to the US is China. The neocons don't hate China, they hate Russia. And that's why they're fixated on it. And so long as, it, as, as that remains the case, which will be forever, they're never going to give up on a place like Belarus. And that, of course, means that Belarus, Lukashenko, who know that perfectly well and understand that completely, are going to remain 
allied with Russia because they know if the Russians go down, they go down with them. And they also know that Russia is the only protection ultimately from the neocons they have. Okay, we'll end it there. Crazy past couple of days. Thedurand.locals.com. Look for us on Rockfin as well in the Durand shop. 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.